Hi, everybody. Hope your weekend is going well. So last episode, we talked about that the fact that despite the uproar over the congressional progressives putting out a statement asking Joe Biden to negotiate with Russia, despite all the heat that that got, that there were some signs coming from Washington, from the White House, that actually diplomacy was not off the table. And that there were signs that actually there was a recognition inside the White House that maybe it was time to wind down the war in Ukraine. And this week we got the most clear sign of that to date when a really extraordinary leak came out in the New York Times. This is the headline. Top U.S. general urges diplomacy in Ukraine while Biden advisors resist. And this is the first, this is the first uh, few paragraphs. A disagreement has emerged at the highest levels of the U.S. government over whether to press Ukraine to seek a diplomatic end to its war with Russia. With America's top general urging negotiations while other advisors to President Biden argue it is too soon. General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has made the case in internal meetings that the Ukrainians have achieved about as much as they could reasonably expect on the battlefield before winter sets in, and so they should try to cement their gains at the bargaining table. So this is, a, you know, extraordinary. This is not some random White House official. This is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top U.S. military officer in the U.S., saying that it is time for diplomacy with Russia. And to underscore that, Milley, you know, has not kept his stance secret. He gave a speech this week where he says that when you have an opportunity for peace, you, you, need, to, you need to seize the moment. And uh, he was directing that message to Ukraine and to Russia. Now, the New York Times story goes on to say that other people inside the White House uh, don't agree with Milley, and so there's a split going on. But um, the fact that the top general, the top U.S. military officer, uh, is being now outed as someone backing diplomacy is huge because... Recall that when congressional progressives had the same position, they were accused of being, you know, pro-Putin, traitors, doing Putin's bidding. Well, you can't say that when you're talking about the nation's top military officer. And I don't know exactly what is compelling him to have that stance, but I have to wonder, it's based on an assessment of what the battlefield is looking like in Ukraine, where even though Ukraine recently took Kherson, which is a major victory, that their forces have still been battered. And Russia is now mobilizing you know, hundreds of thousands of new troops, uh, which Ukraine will have a very hard time with, no matter how many weapons they get. And so I, I imagine that that is what Milley is responding to, is the awareness of, of, of uh, Ukraine's prospects looking a lot worse as winter approaches and as these new Russian troops mobilize. And so now we're in a situation, and this is from CNN, where, quote, the State Department is on the opposite side of the pole from Milley, which leads to a unique situation where military brass are more fervently pushing for diplomacy than U.S. diplomats. And that's something we've talked about a lot since the start of the Ukraine war, that from the start, it's always been the Pentagon that has been the least enthusiastic of the U.S. You know, uh, military, like of the U.S. national security state, it's been the least enthusiastic about the war because of the threat of it turning into outright war against Russia. And uh, that's what I think explains why the Pentagon has always been um, 
more of a voice for restraint on this issue versus the State Department, which is full of people supposed to be diplom, like uh, supposed to be diplomats, but as this story makes clear, they have no interest in diplomacy, and the only people really advocating diplomacy are coming from uh, the top general, like Mark Milley. Now, I don't think Milley is alone because there's no way that Milley would be taking this stance. I think, uh, if he didn't have people in the White House who agreed with him, because after all, he's still, um, operating under a political system and you're not gonna so, you know, publicly undermine the White House unless there's people on your side. So I take all this as a sign that there's people inside the White House, not just Millie, who want diplomacy, um, and are, you know, are, are prepared for this war to come to an end, which, uh, of course, it never should have happened to begin with. The war could have been avoided, but that's where we're at. And if you look at the media coverage, like the reaction to this story, I mean, I think this to me should have been like, you know, top news on all the cable networks, but I didn't really, I haven't seen much reaction to it. And today on the Sunday shows, it wasn't even reported. I didn't, I watched a few of the Sunday shows today and there was no discussion of it. The top U.S. general says we need diplomacy with Russia. And that just speaks to how this proxy war mentality is set into the establishment, that the prospect of peace, even when it comes from a top general is still not something that's very welcome inside Washington. But I suspect that as the winter sets in and especially if Russia mobilizes those troops without a peace deal preventing that, you know, I, I think we'll see more of an awareness of this. So yeah, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And um, it's, uh, it, it's amazing how quickly things change. Like back when the progressives were forced to withdraw their, their letter for diplomacy, it seemed as if there was nobody in Washington who was willing to think soberly. But now, just a few weeks later, something like this comes out, the top U.S. general backs diplomacy, and things have really changed. And so it's just a sign of, or it's a reminder that, you know, even when things feel hopeless, you know, we never know the full story, and things can change very quickly. All right, let's take some calls. Hello, Rena. Hey, Aaron. Uh, your lips to God's ears. I really do hope there's something going to be happening. Um, I used to watch State Department uh, press briefings and have just totally, totally lost the stomach for it altogether, especially for some reason with the Biden administration, because their spokesmodel is just I, I just can't do it anymore. But it, it is fascinating to me when the Pentagon is more dipl diplomatically minded than the state. And that just seems to be more evident every single day. Um, very brief report from Nebraska, since I am your Nebraska correspondent officially. Um, <laughs> if anybody thinks Florida turned red or is, is the reddest of the red states or something, uh, Nebraska, again, has no, no statewide <laughs> officials who are anything other than Republican. The unicameral came within a whisker of uh, having a filibuster-proof majority for the Republicans. The unicameral is nominally nonpartisan, but of course it is partisan. And um, the final thing I have to say about that is uh, we did pass a ballot initiative for $15 minimum wage. So there you go. That's, that's my report. Thank you. 
thank well, you for everything you do. Yeah, thank you. That, that that I didn't know that. I didn't hear about that. So that's very encouraging. Um, well, yeah, it is. Um, unfortunately, we also passed a voter ID requirement. Uh, God only knows what the legislature is going to do because it's up to them to decide what the parameters of the voter ID requirement are. And I would like to assure everyone there is absolutely no voter fraud in this state. Why would anybody bother? You know, it's 99% Republican all the damn time. There, There is no voter fraud here. Uh, but the Ricketts family, uh, the Richie Rich uh, parents and siblings and whatever of our current blessedly outgoing governor, Pete Ricketts, uh, they had they put a lot of money into getting the voter ID thing passed. So ballot oh. initiatives can be good and they can also be used for evil. And that's all I would like to say about that. And uh, your lips to God's ears again or my lips to God's ears or somebody do something. We got to get we got to get money out of politics. We've got to get money out of politics. I have no idea how it happens. But it's got to happen. It's this is mafia crap yeah. at this point, yeah. as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah. Well, I forgot the tally for how much money these midterms cost, but I think it was in the. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure it was in the billions. Um, There's a lot of a lot of spending, and uh, yeah. Um, it, what's crazy is if you, if you were to poll most Americans across parties, would they agree with getting money out of politics? I think most people would agree, but. That doesn't matter because we're not actually in a we're in a democracy. <laughs> we're in a managed democracy. So no, um, it's an oligarchy, and it's yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Again, I I got no ideas how we do it because the people who would have to do it are the ones who are profiting right now from the system. So yeah. I don't know how it happens. Ballot initiatives, maybe. <laughs> who knows? Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron, right, for all call. you do. Thank mm-hmm. you. Bye bye. Thanks for call. Okay, Ian. And then we have an empty queue. So anybody else wants to jump in, jump in the queue, please, please feel free to do so. Okay, Ian, go ahead. Is it working okay? Yeah. Okay, I heard a weird sound. So, um, geez, uh, maybe being a little bit of the cynic here, at least on the, the global perspective. So, you know, General Milley was in the news twice this week. And the other story that I was aware of was the one where he said that the United States is going to be committed to arming and training Taiwan in order to fight a war against mainland China. Mm. And um, I kind of wonder if, well, so it kind of seems like the Russian strategy has been to sort of absorb um, a lot of weapons and resources from NATO countries via Ukraine. And I, I almost wonder if their strategy is like, all right, we're we're starting to lose some major stockpiles. We need to start redirecting um, these weapons over to Taiwan because that's that's where our eye is really centered, and maybe this war in Ukraine is is becoming a bit of a drag. Mm. I wish I could read you the the quotes verbatim. Um, I can probably look them up, but. That's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the general Milley that I, I read this week. And uh, it was, I mean, pretty ominous, like the, I mean, the whole strategic ambiguity thing on Taiwan, like totally gone talking about 
how like we are committed to defending them, we will arm them, and we will train them in order to fight against the PRC. Uh, so I totally missed that because I've been so focused on Ukraine. But yeah, um, that is definitely a place to keep our eye on. And, you know, Biden has made these multiple admissions that basically changing official U.S. policy where he, you know, say, saying that, yes, we would defend them if they were attacked. And um, that is, I mean, uh, whatever happens in Ukraine, the problem in Taiwan doesn't go away. And there are people, and you know, that's a case where Republicans, although some of them have been uh, antagonistic towards funding the Ukraine proxy war, uh, the GOP is pretty united behind, um, you know, trying to back an insurgency uh, in, in Taiwan, if one were to ever materialize. And so yeah. that's a case where you have, you probably won't even have the level of bipartisan disagreement that you have now over Ukraine, which is still pretty small, but at least it's something. Yeah. One thing I kind of, I think about a little bit, and obviously Russia is a, a big factor, if not the larger factor in all of this, but, you know, U.S. Uh, military sp- spending or investment in conflicts abroad pretty much smoothly transitioned from Afghanistan to Ukraine. Yeah. And I think it kind of seems like they're always kind of, shifting resources around the board and kind of looking ahead to the next conflict. Yep. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. It's a racket. Uh, yeah. Sorry to be a, a downer, man. No, no worries at all. No worries at all. Thanks for the call. Thanks a lot. Hi. Okay. Dan, thank you for stepping into the queue, which is looking very lonely today. Uh, you are up. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Hi. Uh, so I just literally just tuned in. Uh, I heard you talking about Ukraine, peace, and all that. Mm-hmm. Just a quick question. Maybe it's not even related to today's topic, but like my Twitter feed over the last couple of days has been filled with all these talks about FTX, cryptocurrency, U.S. military aid sent to Ukraine that apparently was allegedly was used to invest into FTX. Have you seen any of these stories? I, I have seen uh, some of this. and uh, Did you manage to get your rapper head around it? Because I can't I have make not. It. I have not. Oh. But I have, I have seen this. And basically, the story is, let me just pull it out so I can get this right. Um, FTX was a partner of Ukraine's Ministry of Digital Transformation. Which, by the way, was the was one of the ministries that got me and Max Blumenthal canceled at that uh, conference in Portugal recently at Web Summit. That like they put out a letter uh, to the Web Summit, basically urging them to cancel us, which I, which they won on. I did not get canceled. Yes. Yeah. So FTX was a partner of theirs, and there was some sort of, um, and you know, if you look at the Twitter feed of the of the FTX guy, whatever his name is, Sam. Sam something B Sam BF like those were his initials SBF. Um, he announced back in February. He said we just gave twenty five dollars to each Ukrainian on FTX. Do what you got to do. And uh, so he's definitely got something going on there when it comes to Ukraine. And I don't know exactly what that is, but um, 
it's it's definitely worth looking into and i suspect we'll hear more about it very soon because um people i know are looking into that i just haven't had a chance to wrap my head around it right because again things that i've seen so far apparently some of the money that the ukraine was given in military aid apparently mm -hmm. people say that they used some of that money to actually reinvest into the cryptocurrency into the ftx thing mm -hmm. and now because so it was some people argued but then i'm not saying is the case i'm just asking because i thought maybe you had a chance to look into it yeah but yeah. lots of people argue it seems like a huge like money laundering like the same money just changing hands like three or four times and then all of a sudden the company went bankrupt so now all that money is gone even though it made the full circle mm -hmm. from the military aid to ukraine which invested in ftx which donated to democrats in the latest like midterms so it's like a very seems like a very complicated situation and that's what i thought maybe you had the yes, time yes. to well listen uh, it sounds it. it sounds very interesting and i don't want to make any assumptions about what actually happened with with ftx in ukraine without no without looking into it but it sounds like definitely something worth looking into and uh and i and i will and people who i know uh are doing that as well and uh so I will definitely, re I will definitely revisit this issue. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'll definitely keep an eye out on your Twitter feed and uh, I'll you. call him to see when you, if you're talking about it. Thank right. You. Thank That's you very much, Aaron. Thanks, thank Dan. you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye, bye. bye. All right, Mary. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Um, I jumped in your queue because it was really small, but I, it uh, started to pick up after me. So. I appreciate it. I appreciate hey. it. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm going to be one of those people who comes on and just appreciates you um, because uh, I, I started following your stuff just this year, um, just with uh, like before, slightly before the invasion happened um, and I was really confused. Um, I really wanted to understand what was happening. And um, I got really sort of taken by surprise because I didn't realize that I was going to find myself in opposition to mm. the sort of way I was supposed to think according to my in-group at the time. Yep. And it has been a wildly destabilizing experience. And um, I've just been so grateful that, you know, there's a few people like you out there and um it yeah it's it's just an insane moment to have woken up to this stuff um yeah listen i i, I can very much relate and many people have had similar experiences in this in this era of um where you know if, if you you know for me like considering myself to be on the left um what the left really means is really changed and you know with every single democrat voting for the proxy war and no dis and any and when the when the progressive caucus when they got like attacked viciously just for asking for diplomacy it, it shows how powerful groupthink is right now and how little space there is for dissent so what you're saying is i think very relatable to a lot of people yeah yeah and i i had been fully into the trump derangement syndrome also before this moment like i I went out of, I mean, when Trump was elected, I think we were just so 
so shocked and just desperately wanted. There were so many of us who, who wanted there to be some way for it not to be true. And we were really vulnerable to, to being taken advantage of. And now I see all, all your work on Russiagate and I realize that the guy is a slime bucket, but you know, there's, there's more than one game being played and, and it, yeah, it's, it's just, it's been a really crazy experience. And now I, I feel like I'm in a small minority of people who, who sees like how there's a lot of bullshit that's, that's being, you know, a lot of people are getting taken for a ride and, and it's really hard to, to know what, what's real and what's true. And, you know, you come across with so much rigor and so much integrity and, you know, it's still hard sometimes. It's still hard to, to know like what the hell's going on. Sure, 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 sure. Thank well, you. Mary, thank you, Mary. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. All right. Bye. Okay. Loki. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, Aaron. Um, I was, uh, I was, I saw a documentary that was released recently. I think it was on Endeavor. And, um, it, it mentioned an aspect of the Ukraine war. I haven't really heard anybody talk about. And uh, one of one of those was that the that Ukraine was really pro prolific in like commune style farms, and they had really they had really productive independent agriculture. You know, which is is not surprising considering they're one of the breadbaskets of the world. But it seems, but. It looks like they're, you know, with with all the destruction and the chaos, like they're already giving out contracts to, you know, rebuild Ukraine and private companies are coming in and just basically vacuuming up, you know, quote unquote stressed assets like they're doing in the States. And um and I think Ukraine also is taking a taking out a loan with the World Bank as well. And I think part of the stipulation of that loan is conforming to the the kind of um the bio the biotech agriculture that's being that's been, you know, attempted to be imposed upon a lot of the world and it has been imposed on the states. So do you what's what uh what's your thinking about the Ukraine war in this context of, you know, kind of like food hegemony and hmm. well listen yeah i haven't thought about that issue at all so i can't offer you any original thoughts i mean what i know about sort of the global role in, in ukraine and the way it's is that you know since 2014 when it you know has become firmly in the you know eu nato u.s camp it's had to commit to harsh austerity so you know cutting the public sector cutting uh, pensions and heating subsidies and getting into really, uh, I think, dangerous debt schemes with international lenders where a lot of Ukraine's wealth is going to be going to international debtors because they've taken advantage of Ukraine's perilous state and the fact that Ukraine needs money. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that same kind of you know, colonial arrangement is being, is being replicated when it comes to reconstruction and and Ukraine's agriculture, which, you know, which is, which is, it's, uh, is one of its main industries is its export of, of grain. So, uh, but that's interesting. I, um, thanks for raising that. I just don't, I haven't looked into it. Gotcha. Uh, 
And yeah, yeah. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank a lot. you. Thank you. All right, Jed. Hey, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. I was wondering if you heard about the whole David Ike uh, situation. Uh, no. You're Who is he again? I've heard that name before. Yeah, he's pretty well known. Um, talks about aliens and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, okay. So it's interesting because he just recently he went to he was going to be a keynote speaker in Amsterdam in an anti-war rally uh, protesting the war in Ukraine, and now he's been banned from traveling to twenty-six countries. Okay, well, I didn't know that. Um, I mean, honestly, when I think of his name, I think of Holocaust denial. Is that is that true? Maybe. Is Holocaust denial? I mean, I'm not a big fan of his, but yeah. I, I think it's interesting that a person who made their notoriety talking about lizard people, uh, <laughs> the line that, that he crosses, which is too far, is protesting a war. In Ukraine, right. Well, you know, uh, without knowing the, the details, I, I mean... I really actually do believe in free speech, including for including for Holocaust deniers and and whatever else he is. And I, I hope I'm not wrong when I accuse him of that, because I don't want to falsely accuse him. But that's that's what my mind associates with him when I hear that name. So but um, look, you know, it, it was just announced that George W. Bush and Barack Obama are both holding conferences on the problem of disinformation. So George W. Bush, who pushed the most consequential piece of disinformation in the century, which is that Iraq had WMDs and um, had ties to Al-Qaeda. Um, he's, he's allowed to speak, and, and he should be allowed to speak, I think. Uh, but if we're going to let him speak and let Barack Obama speak and pretend that they have something to say about disinformation, I, I think we should apply that to everybody else. And so it's just, um, it's extraordinary. And, and by the way, Bush and Zelensky are doing a, uh, some sort of a event pretty soon, apparently. Uh, so anyway, my point is, <laughs> I believe in free speech. Yeah, no matter who. Yeah, he spoke out pretty aggressively against COVID lockdowns. He did a, a show with Charlie Rose. None of these people I really particularly like very much. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, when people are willing to sort of stick their neck out, he's got a big platform. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if he wants to lend that voice to opposing a war, uh, I just think it's pretty amazing that somebody who has said so many incendiary, controversial things uh, in public for so long, uh, that's the line you can't cross. That's Exactly. Exactly. That is really interesting and, and very illustrative of the current moment we're in. You just can't question this war. Um, although maybe that's changing now. Maybe that's changing now. We'll see. Uh, Jed, thanks for the call. Okay, Tim. Hello, Tim. And Tim, you've called before, so I know you know how to use the mute button. So if you can hear this, come back in the queue if you're having an issue, and we will try again. Okay. Maria. 
Um, I I hope you had a safe and uneventful trip back. But I've really been wanting to hear some more about Portugal, and I I just have been entertaining the idea that useful idiots has a trophy case somewhere of every time somebody gets censored or called out <laughs> guardian. I mean, because, you know, being censored by Madame Zelenska, that's, that's bragging rights right there. Yeah. It's funny. Um, it's funny. It was, you know, it was just such a, it, it was a really silly ordeal. Like we get invited to this conference. We didn't ask to, to get invited. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's some behind the scenes pressure and all of a sudden they're apologizing for inviting us. And like, and, and we're, and, and like Web Summit put out a statement saying, we're sorry for the hurt caused. And we apologize to the people of Lisbon is if anybody in Lisbon, except maybe two people have heard of me and Max Blumenthal, you know? So it's just like, it was very silly. And um, look, you know, as I've said, I, I feel the Zelensky's it's, it's, it's sad to me because whatever their intentions were when they, when they won the presidency, whatever Zelensky's intention was, he ran on a, on a peace platform. He, and people voted for him in the hope that he would make peace. And the fact that he couldn't speaks to the power, I think, of Ukraine's far right and how they've taken over policy. And they've been able to take over policy because they have the firm backing of Washington, who didn't want to make peace in Ukraine and didn't want to end the Donbass war, didn't want to implement the Minsk Accords. And so... It's just sad to me that now the Zelensky's are reduced to canceling people like myself who point stuff like that out. And um, just, and it was silly. And I thought it was silly that, that this Web Summit caved to their demands because, you know, I, I don't like, it, yeah, I, I, th- I thought that was unfortunate. And I, I thought it was unfortunate that we didn't get more kind of solidarity from like journalists and press freedom groups, at least publicly. But, you know, whatever. That's just how it is. When you, like on this issue, when... It's just so hard to be a critic. People just don't want to uh, don't want to deal with the damage of being called names and and all that stuff. And so that was a sad case here. Well, that's that's why you need a trophy case, <laughs> along with the Guardian article about you and you know Katie's you know disconnect with the Hill. And as I understand it, useful idiots original disconnect with Rolling Stone was related to uh, tier- Syria truth speaking that they didn't care for. So, yeah, you know, I'm not, you know, I know Katie and Matt kind of joked about that, that uh, but I don't know exact. I think basically overall, Rolling Stone definitely wanted to go in a, in a different direction. I, I don't know if it was directly related to Syria, but certainly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually, but I don't actually, it might just be that they just didn't want to host that show. Uh, for many uh, political reasons and, and not just Syria, but definitely, um, uh, yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that, that their serious stuff was a factor. Uh, and, and now like, cause Rolling Stone is now it's, it's helmed by a guy named Noah Shackman. Who's a, who's a neocon. He used to edit the daily beast and he recently put out that hit piece on Roger Waters. And so, yeah, um, that was a, I forgot about that, but that was, yeah. Um, well, and also the not small matter, I don't know if anybody else noticed, but when they went over to the other platform, well, just soloed it, uh, 
Rolling Stone still clung tooth and nail to monopolize the Google search on useful idiots. You couldn't get to the new YouTube channel without going through a bunch. The only hits you got for about four or five months afterwards were the Rolling Stone hits if you Googled it. Huh. Huh. Well, uh, that's the power of, of, of these big brands. They can, they can do that. And they punish you for going independent. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Maria, for the call. All right, Timothy. And Timothy, if you're there, there's a mute button to press to unmute yourself. And there you go. Oh, hello. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. Um, would you accept that there is um, near universal uh, agreement that certain strategic actions are both morally and strategically advantageous, like, for example, um, providing aid to a country undergoing a uh, sort of emergency famine, you know, like um, like Ethiopia in if if we had access to Ethiopia at the moment or whatever. In other words, what I'm saying is, um, have you not considered that the reason why there does seem to be this unanimity on providing aid to Ukraine is that it is one of those rare occasions where it is an, in international relations, it's very rare that there is a clear good guy and bad guy, that there is a clear aggressor with intentions that are at least have genocidal scope in exterminations, exterminationists in terms of the state of Ukraine as an independent polity, surely. Um, and also that strategically, it's, it's very important because not only because of energy prices and such, but it's advantageous. Um, it's desirable for, for almost the entire world, except for a small axis of autocracies that, um, that a democratic country um, flawed though it is, is defended against a one party, what's become essentially a, a fascist imperialist uh, autocracy. All right. Well, the, so the problem there for me is you make a lot of assumptions that I don't share. So first of all, when you say that, that the consequences to the world are, and I want to, I want to um, get you correctly. Uh, you said that, that there, that the consequences to the world of this war are not very um, negative, and it only—it's really only negative to a small group of group of autocrats. Is that what you're saying? Uh, Ukraine's Russia's victory and Ukraine's defeat would only benefit uh, Russia's allies, which is oh, okay, from Iran, okay, North Korea, okay. all right, Syria, so etc. All right, all right. So I misunderstood you. I thought you said that that the consequences of of, of having a prolonged war are really only a negative to a small group of, uh, of autocracy. So I got that wrong, but listen, but on your, um, other assertion that this is a clear case of an aggressor and there's good guys and bad guys. See, I don't, I don't share that. I definitely don't support Russia's invasion. I don't justify it, but I also don't think that it started the war. To me, the war began in February, 2014, when there was a coup, the U S supported that coup. We don't know to what extent they were involved, but we do know that, 
you know, one of their top officials, Victoria Nuland, was caught on tape plotting the installation of a new Ukrainian government. Uh, and that set off a war between people resisting this new coup government and the coup government. And that war kills 14,000 people. And that's been going yes, on for yes. eight, and, no, hold on a second. And, and that's been going on for eight years. And there was a peaceful uh, uh, settlement on the table to end that war called the Minsk Accords. And I personally primarily fault Ukraine and its backers in Washington for Minsk not being implemented. And so given that there were peaceful ways to avoid Russia's invasion, I can't primarily or I can't solely fault Russia in this conflict. I can't say that they're the only bad guy because I think I believe that Russia actually made efforts in the previous eight years to reach a peaceful resolution to this. And I've written about that a lot, that the Minsk Accords uh, and the fact that they weren't implemented was to me primarily the fault of Ukraine's far right, which refused to accept them because they didn't want to accept any equality for Ukrainians who identify with Russia and want to speak Russian and want to have ties to Russia. That to me is the fundamental problem here. So that's why I, I just can't accept the uh, assertion you make that this is a, a, a clear cut case of, of, of an aggressor versus, um, versus a country defending itself because the country now defending itself, I think, could have avoided all of this had it had the ability to stand up to its own far right. And it didn't. And that to me is a major factor in this. Okay. So just, just, I mean, there's so many things there. Um, and let me just say that, uh, I was living in Moscow in 2014 and I'm a fluent Russian speaker and I visited uh, Ukraine during the Donbass war. Um, and so, uh, for you to say that because the conflict started in 2014, when Russia invaded initially, that that somehow justifies a second. But anyway, let's assume. No, 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 hold on a second. Hold on a second. The first thing I said, or one of the the first things I said to you is, I don't justify Russia's invasion. I don't. I explicitly said that. No, but you you said because. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend, or at least uh, I'm not going to accept the claim that this war started this year. To me, that's when it began. And when you say Russia invaded in 2014. In 2014. Yeah, well, yes, Russia sent some soldiers in. It did send some forces in, the little, little green men. But the idea that that was a full-scale invasion, to me, uh, just doesn't pass muster. The majority of the people fighting Ukraine, the, the, the post-coup government, were Ukrainians. It, it, that no, was they weren't. No, they weren't. Yes, they were. Well, listen. No, they were. Well, I was there. They weren't, trust me. You, you can hear you the were, accent. You, you were in Ukraine? You were in the Donbass? Yes, yes, in 2015. You can hear it in their accents. But anyway, that's not the point. It's not the point. Um, let's say I accept everything, almost everything you've just said there. But if there was uh, a coup in 2014 and there was a far right or whatever, even though there's only one uh, parliament member out of 450 in Ukraine that's a member of the far right, which is one of the lowest uh, levels in all of Europe, not only Eastern Europe. But let's say all that is true. Um there was a, a free and fair elections in 2019, not disputed. Zelensky won uh, over 70, 78% of the vote. The highest percentage was in the Southeast amongst Russian speakers like him. And no, if, if there was a coup and it was all legitimate, it was Nazis and blah, 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 then the only re- restitution to, solve, to, to to remedy that would be to have free and fair elections if Poroshenko and all that was uh, you know, illegitimate. And that's what happened. 
Yes. Um, so how, right, how, exactly. how, well, again, and this, how comes, was... this comes down to the role of the far right in sabotaging peace in Ukraine, because you say that back in 2014, there was only one member of the parliament who was in the far or right. Now there's only one member. Oh, or now. Okay, fine. Back in 2014, though, the new government. In 2014. The, okay, but okay, but forget, but but forget lawmakers for a second. How about the cabinet, the new cabinet that came in in 2014? Let's say you're right, but there was there was there was, there was there was at least five. Not in Hold on a second. There was at least five people who came from the far right back in 2014, and they they had. Hold on a second. And they had a huge impact on what followed, which included people like Andre Perubi, who was like made the new chair of the. Uh, the National Defense Council or, or, or some, some similar name to that. He was one, among the people who were in Odessa basically cheering on or egging on the, those who burned dozens of, anti-co, uh, of anti-coup protesters alive when they were protesting the coup and they got pushed into a trade building and burned alive. And Perubi was among those who was there and he was with the forces that carried that out. So that, set the, that helped set off the war that began that year. Uh, and that has killed 14,000 people since. And then you bring up the point that, yes, okay, so yes, that happened in 2014, but what about 2019? There was an election then. Well, what was that election about? Zelensky won on a mandate of two things, fighting corruption and ending the war in the Donbass. And what happened when he tried to implement the latter mandate of ending the war in the Donbass? In October 2019, he goes and he signs uh, something called the Steinmeier Formula, which is a German peace proposal to try to revive the Minsk Accords because it had been dormant, because Poroshenko had refused to implement Minsk. And what, what happens to Zelensky when he does that? He goes to the front lines in the Donbass and he meets with, it, with an Azov commander. And there's a video of this. And Zelensky's uh, very upset because Azov is refusing to obey his own orders that they withdraw and that they allow some local elections there. And the Azov yes, guy... Yes. I know and the name like, of that town, and I speak Russian. I understand exactly okay. what they said. And, and, I, can, I can recite it to you now. Okay, okay. And do you know so, what happened after that in Svetolia? They Zelensky kicked and and he removed those Azov uh, guys from the armed forces. He disarmed them and removed them, and they pulled out of the city and disarmed. That's what no, happened. And then, so what you and saw later, in that video, and, what and then, you saw then, in that video was the president asserting his sovereignty over a militia that oh, a small number of a militia. Who had uh, rebelled yes. against you're, the okay, state but, but you're missing you're missing the part though, where meanwhile also thousands of people rally in Kiev and and, and chant no to capit- no to capitulation. They have torches and Zelensky. Yeah, ten thousand people. Hold on a second. Hold on a Zelensky's tune changes pretty quickly, and so by 2020, you have no evidence of that. That's a conspiracy yeah, theory. I, I, no I, evidence I, no, whatsoever. I, I can, it was ten thousand people. They have demonstrations of millions during the yes, Maidan. Ten thousand people of Poroshenko. It was nothing. He was, he's not even in Parliament anymore. His party. It's a nothing. Ten thousand people. That's not even one Dynamo Kiev football okay, match. You're by 2020, Zelensky changes his tune. So, for example, here's a headline from the Financial Times um, in, tw- in April 2021. Ukrainian leader calls for a re- revamp of peace process to end the Donbass war. And basically, that's when Zelensky started saying that we need to revisit Minsk. And, um, and it, it, he says this, for example, the Minsk process should be more flexible in the situation. It should serve the purposes of today, not of the past. And that was basically Zelensky saying that he was not going to implement the key provisions of Minsk II, 
which he initially, I think, to his credit, tried to do. But my point is the power of the far right overruled him. And How? Because they, because they, even though they're a small... 10,000 people? Even though they're a small percentage of the country, they have an outsized influence inside the national security state. And that, oh, that's why ooh. Zelensky... And that's name, why Zelensky, name. and that's why Zelensky, hold on a second, made an as uh, made an Azov commander, a, uh, no, he didn't. a gave him a top no, military post. Yes, he did. No, and he that's didn't. why he gave, <laughs> and that's why he, he gave was... a hero of Ukraine award to, uh, to 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 an Azov commander as well. You don't even so, know their names, do you? And you can't uh, pronounce them. That did not happen. Dmitry Yarosh. Uh, 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 he was appointed to a position of Zaluzhny, which was the military thing. And then Zelensky personally de-appointed uh, him. He was only there for like three weeks. And that's one guy out of a National Security Council of like 30 people, most of whom speak Russian. And also almost all the current government are, as it happens, ethnic Jews or partial Jews. None of them are religious. Um, uh, so all you have is maybe like these really, really uh, marginal figures, one seat in parliament, a 10,000 people uh, uh, demonstration. If you look at the opinion polls, uh, uh, the, the the desire to, for example, what you said about uh, Zelensky running, he also ran on, on, a, on a platform of returning Crimea to Ukraine. And the, va- and the vast majority of Southeastern uh, Ukrainians, Russian speakers, where most ethnic Russians are concentrated, voted in the highest level of votes were in uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, over 80% for Zelensky. So you think the people of the Donbass wanted Zelensky to retake Crimea? Yes, and that's what they say now. 57%, according to the latest poll, 57% of ethnic Russians in southeastern Ukraine oppose any territorial concessions uh, to Moscow. And it's 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 over eight it's over eighty percent for Russian speakers and it's over ninety percent for Ukraine as a whole. Okay, well, look, I don't know what polls you're citing, and uh, I, you know, this we... is the K- K- this is the KIIS okay. KISS, which is the same as Levada in Russia. They've been around since okay. 1991. Okay. Well, look, they're extremely look, they're extremely look, reliable. They've been yeah. doing it for uh-huh, for, uh, uh-huh. for, for four, well, look, three decades. Look, here's what I know. The vast majority of Crimeans want to be a part of Russia. That's so you understood. don't know that. You no, don't okay, know that. Okay. All right. All right. So I can we're... prove it to you in two seconds yeah, that you don't yeah, know that. Yeah. Okay. There were two. There were two parties in Crimea that advocated for union with Russia. They were called Soyuz, which means union, and Yudensky Yelasinsky, uh-huh. which means united Russia. Both of those parties voluntarily, for for a start, they never even got ten percent of the vote together in Crimea's regional elections. Never mind. Federal elections, okay. where they never even got seats. Listen, and secondly, listen. secondly, they voluntarily yeah. disma- disbanded when when Russia invaded and it's Crimea, and they okay. voluntarily joined Putin's. I'm going uh, to okay. Listen, on the question of Crimea, I'm going to go with the U.S. government-funded polls, which have shown clearly and consistently that the vast majority of people of Crimea want to be a part of Russia. So, for example, a Gallup poll front and the Broadcasting Board of Governors back from 2014. Uh, Please tell yes, me. 2014, you, before the second. invasion. No, no, after Russia annexed. No, Ukraine. no. Please no, tell no me. Polls, you, no polls were held in Excuse in, me. In annex, excuse me. Uh, please, okay. Quiet for a second. Please tell me if you agree or disagree. The results of the referendum on Crimea status likely reflect the views of most people here. 82% said yes. The result of the, of the referendum 
reflect our views in Crimea. That's from Gallup and the Broadcasting Board of Governors. So look, in the Donbass, um, it's, I've always actually said this, that it's, it's more mixed. I don't, I don't think that the recent referendums that were held in these uh, newly annexed Russian territories 99.37%? Sorry? In Donetsk, 99.37%? You think that's yeah, no, credible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've never said that's credible. No, I, I don't. And there should be internationally supervised referendums there with everybody who Fantastic. lives there being allowed to take part. But basically, look, um, you. Uh, my point is that the, the, that the Ukrainian far right has played an outsized role. And that's why even right before Russia invaded, at the you can't final even mention ra- one name. Okay, I, I apologize to you if I don't have the names off the top of my head. Uh, but, but either what I'm saying is true but or it's, false. It's, it's, oh, it's a crucial part of your argument, and you don't even know their names, numbers. Okay, no, no, no. What matters, on my, what, what, what matters on my argument is whether what I'm saying is factual or not. Not whether I, I can recite to you, uh, you know, a but, series of but Ukrainian there is no one. So hold on a second. And so that's why right before uh, Russia invaded, at the final round of talks on implementing Minsk, Zelensky wouldn't even speak to the rebel leaders, which was, had been a long-time stance. He started out agreeing to speak to them, but by, the end of, but by the end of this process, up until the invasion, he wouldn't even speak to them. And that's, again, because, I think, of people in the far right who were threatening him with an outright coup. Um, this, this happened yeah, right before the war. Of that. Really? Do, okay. you know, do you know how big as okay, Have you heard? Okay, listen, here's a name for you. Okay. His name is Yuri Hudimenko. He's leader of the Democratic Acts, a far right group. And this is him in early February. In the leader of what? Sorry. Hold on a second. He's leader of, of the Democratic Acts, okay, which is a far right group in Ukraine. He says this about Zelensky making a peace deal with Russia and the rebels. He says this If anybody from the Ukrainian government tries to sign such a document, a million people will take to the streets, and that government will cease being the government. And that is the threat that Zelensky lived under. So listen, I just gave you a name which you really want for some reason. And yeah, I because gave no you one's a, heard I of gave, him. And because, and because sorry, I've just what? Googled him. Because no one's heard of him and I've just Googled him. And he's part no of an organization called, yes, Democratic Acts, which has one seat out of 158,000 in the regional councils in the yes, country. I've but never also, heard of him. That's, again, that's my point. These, these people have, been, despite their, their small numbers in parliament and again i don't think they represent the ukrainian people i think they're very small he's about 25 years old okay he was quoted in the new york times threatening zelensky with a coup so some people at least take you you're free to ignore them okay and you're also these people have huge numbers of forces that's the whole point how big is azov uh azov has thousands of members no no how big is Azov? You know, I, I don't have the exact figure off the top of my head. So yeah, you why don't you tell me? Approximately. Approximately how big is Azov? Why don't you tell me? It's 450,000 people in the Ukrainian armed forces. Azov at its peak in 2015 was 1,300 people. Okay, well, Azov... At the beginning of the invasion, it was yeah. 800 to 900. No, no, and no, now no. it's less Azov than 300 grown, active members. Azov has grown since then. That's why they were on the front line of, of the forces. <laughs> it, it, it's true. Who was deployed, you think, in 2014, 2015 to, to go shelter? That's when they were at their feet. Yes. yes. Yeah. No. 
and and they've certainly grown since during during this invasion. And, and, and by the not, way, and by the way, look, if you want some more, if you want some more names, let's talk about your uh, uh, Dimitro Yarosh uh, of the <laughs> yes. uh, Ukrainian Volunteer Army. And, and what did he say about Zelensky after Zelensky won? Zelensky said that I'm prepared to take political risk to make peace. He said, um, and he said I'm prepared to lose my popularity and my ratings. So what did Yarosh say? He said, no, he would lose his life. He will hang on some tree if he betrays Ukraine and those people who died in the in the Maidan Revolution and the war. So if you want to pretend that these people, he's an activist. He has no power. He's an yeah, activist. Okay. He has uh, right, no so, position. Yeah. Well, you're he has you're, no, he has... you're you're in the minority because the for example, the U.S. Congress was so concerned about the power of these groups that they went ahead and banned assistance to Azov back in 2018. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course so. they did. Yes. So somebody, you're free to dismiss the threat. Because they were militias. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, right. And you're free to downplay that. They're not a threat to the Ukrainian, to. Ukrainian government. 1,000 people, 1, people are not a threat to the Ukrainian government. Okay, well, then I don't think you know anything about Ukraine because plenty of people <laughs> see these people as a threat. And you're free to downplay it if you want to. I'm not going to. And we're going to leave it there. But, Timothy, thank you for calling in. This was a good exchange. Thank you. All right, Tim. Tim, are you there? Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my first original intention for calling was just to apologize for being a little obnoxious last week. I apologize for that. Uh, I was a little um, dismissive of your point of view um, or, or anyway talked over you. So apologies for that. But I guess Timothy's uh, comments earlier <laughs> um, kind of uh, shows obviously that as we all know, you can take it. Um, the, the thing I wanted to ask you about originally was just um, whether you feel like you're free to actually uh, you know, your value, I think, is that you're so detail-oriented and so careful about what you see, what you say, I should say, that, you know, I think somewhat the difference between my point of view and your point of view is that I kind of squint and blurt and want to say, like, what is obviously, I think is obviously going on here. And just to give an example, um, you know, Timothy's comments right just before me are to the point because um you know the it, it's blatantly obvious what's been going on here in terms of it's not about numbers it's not a democracy game um after the Maidan coup the um the far right got four um ministerial positions right did they was that democratically justified well first of all the whole thing was obviously like as as friedman from Stratfor said the most obvious coup in history um that i think what's getting lost here is in the details is um the geopolitics of it you know we are in the west we are we're literally blindsided every day by why we need to go to war against Russia and why we need to go to war against China. And if you zoom way out, 
that's the context that, that everyone needs to remember. It's not the details that you cover so well. It's the shift that's happened gradually over the past eight or eight years or whatever, where we're, we're literally talking about Millie is the only sensible person in the room. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Tim, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it there because I I'm seeing we have a lot more callers and I have limited time. So yeah. thank you for the call. And, and thanks for the apology. I don't even remember what you're apologizing for, but I accept it. <laughs> I don't accept it. So yeah. uh, thank you for calling. Okay. Um, Felipe, Felipe. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Okay? Yes. All right. Just a comment and a question. I think both will be quick. Uh, the comment is just a, a, a praise for you just now for engaging with the second to last caller. I think this is just a, it's a good, it's, it's good for the audience. So not shying away from the conversation. No, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, this is why I really like, you know, uh, Colin is it, it allows for, you know, random opportunities like that. And, and it's, you know, I, I appreciate being challenged and, uh, and it's good to have these debates and I, I I'm glad it was entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And not entertaining from a, a popcorn point of view, but yeah, yeah. enlightening, I would say is because yeah, I, I don't dismiss Timothy's argument, though I share very much of your analysis of the situation of the conflict. Um, I don't dismiss Timothy's arguments either. And I think, you know, it's a passionate person who is bringing something to the table. So it's good that you engage with that because, you know, as I think Brianna Jai Gray said the other day, I do call in on her show as well and consume her content that, you know, that is not the case for, quote unquote, the other side. The folks who are see this war differently than you often yeah. don't engage in this kind of thing and don't have this kind of behavior. So if you want to take a, a recommendation from a pretty much an anonymous caller who doesn't do your job or anything like that, the, the more stoic you remain, the better, I think. Uh, and I think I'm not criticizing. I think you did a good uh, you did it well. But, you know, uh, the more civil, the calmer, I think, the better it is for the audience. So thanks for that. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and, and I take your point about remaining calm. It's, it's fair enough. It's, it's easy to get riled up. Well, I mean, it's also easier to say that when you're not in, in the call. So, uh, <laughs> But in any case, uh, um, just a, a quick question. And if your answer is just, I have no idea, that's a totally fair answer. Um, I'm curious about if you have any opinions on the domestic sentiments inside Russia, uh, just because we know that it, it's kind of hard to get information from uh, from. In, inside the borders of geopolitical adversaries of the United States, especially yes. in the English language. It's hard to get, uh, you know, a true sen uh, sense of, you know, all the different factions and opinions that exist inside China, inside Russia, things like that. Uh, and we do know, but we do know a, f a few things. We know that, you know, part of the political class and the political elites in, actually, the, the overwhelming majority of the political class and political elites in Russia don't uh, actually see... Uh, the situation similar to Putin in terms of not tolerating Ukraine joining NATO. I think is Navalny is a good example of that, uh, things like that. We do know that there is a right wing inside Russia that is critical of Putin and wanted them, uh, Putin to take a, a much harsher approach to the conflict, mobilize earlier and all that kind of stuff. So those are just two examples of things that I know are to be the case inside Russia. But I just wanted to see if you know anything um, else about the domestic sentiments inside that country. Yeah, uh, it's not something I know very much about. I've never been to Russia, and I—I uh, I mean, you know, I see the polls showing that Putin is popular, and um, most people I know who are informed about Russia tell me that that's credible. But uh, in terms of what they want out of the war, and for example, are they more hawkish than than Putin? I—I I know certainly there are people in the establishment who are more hawkish than Putin, but as for the public, I, I have no idea. And um, I think the only way really to best find out is to go there and just to 
try to get a, a sense for oneself, but, you know, but not many of us can do that. And so without me doing that, I just, it's not something I can really speak to. Yeah, I, I, that's a fair answer. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the good word. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Jeff. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. I was just reading a news article from Channel 4 News, which is fairly mainstream source in the UK, from March 2014. And uh, obviously this is before Zelensky took power. Uh, but it says, it's titled, How the Far Right Took Top Under the title, it Jeff, says, sorry, you are... Ukrainian... Yeah. Yeah, you, you're breaking up a little bit, so... But uh, keep oh, Sorry. I, yeah, I got... I was just reading an article uh, from Channel 4 News, which is pretty establishment uh, news source here in the UK. And the mm -hmm. title of it is, How the Far Right Took Top Posts in Ukraine's Power Vacuum. And it says, in the new Ukrainian government, politicians linked to the far right have taken posts from deputy prime minister to head of defense. We profile the nationalists filling the power vac uh, vacuum. Now, obviously, this is several years before Zelensky. But how would the far right be able to secure uh, top ministerial posts in a Ukrainian government if they're just backed up by a few thousand Nazi militants? Well, that's the point, right, is that they've played an outsized role they've, and because they were the muscle behind the Maidan coup um, that, yeah. you know, and they, and they have the backing of the U.S. Um, that's how they've been able to, to thrive. And there's, it's very difficult if you're a Ukrainian politician to go up against them. And I think they've basically thrived off of that, uh, off of intimidating people. And Zelensky, again, I think he made some attempts initially to stand up to it, but I think he got told his place. And uh, when you have people yeah. threatening to kill you, I mean, literally threatening to kill you, hang you from a tree, um, that has an impact. It just does. Well, yeah. It's just I saw that uh, Timothy said something about no one had ever heard of these far-right people, but they were, you know, top-level officials in the um, post-coup government in 2014. Yes. Yeah, and, yes, and also exactly. what you what you say about what you say about Zelensky is quite, uh, I think, kind in a way because there is another way to view Zelensky, and that is as someone who came to power on the favors of a crooked oligarch, and who, who same oligarch who funds the Azov Battalion, and we know that um, I think you might have seen the video on YouTube. I don't know if it's authentic or not, but it seems to show the first cabinet meeting of Zelensky, and he's advocating you know a military crackdown in the donbass um so... yes you know yes yes that's right you know listen and zelensky's main backer was the main backer of the azov battalion but um yep. you know um it's uh but it's tough you know so i don't know exactly what was in his head whether it was all cynical all along or whether he really tried i, I suspect he is just an opportunist and when he won there was a big you know, it was it was popular to push for peace, and uh, it looks to me like he did make some efforts, like you know, trying to get Azov to withdraw, and trying to get some elections held in the Donbas, trying to you know, signing on to an agreement to basically revive Minsk, and you know, we'll never know really what what would have happened because the point is the far right revolted and, and they won, and he had no backing from Washington, and this is a a point uh, made by Samuel Cherup, who is a analyst with Rand Corporations, 
uh, with Rand Corporation, which is a U.S. government-funded think tank, he pointed out in November of 2021, so as this crisis was starting up with Russian forces massing on the border, he said that the U.S. to this point has put no pressure on Ukraine to implement Minsk. And if, the, if they do put pressure on, on Ukraine, that could help avoid a disaster. And of course, the U.S. didn't. So the U.S. basically sided with the far right. But you're right. Uh, Zelensky could have been just playing everybody all along and never actually had any intention to make peace. We'll never know. But what we do know is that when he made some gestures that made it look like he was trying to do it, he was sabotaged. And uh, Jeff, thanks for the call. Okay, thanks. All right, Matt. Hello, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, well, hi. First, I've called in a couple of times, but uh, I wanted to thank you for your work. Also, your dad's work is a huge inspiration to my wife. I actually got she's a counselor. I got her his book for her birthday. So thank you to the whole family. Well, that's very cool. And uh, I'm a big fan of his new book, too. <laughs> well, I just want to address a couple of things from the caller a couple calls ago. This whole moral clarity thing. I mean, to the extent that that's what the U.S. acts on, the United States government acts on. I mean, it's just that's such a a fig leaf to, that if you just do the least bit of research, it turns over. Right. So is there a more more obvious moral wrong, moral right and moral wrong than the U.S. invasion of Iraq or Vietnam or currently starving Syria or Afghanistan or the embargo on Cuba or the million children in the concentration camping Gaza. Yeah. I mean, there are very obvious moral situations and I'll be, and then even in this situation, there are, you know, you know, the list better than I do, but there are quite literally dozens, maybe hundreds of us officials who have warned about the situation for decades saying this yes. is wrong to expand NATO, et cetera. We're pushing Russia into a corner. Yeah. Again, that doesn't make Russia right. But the idea that this is, this is a morally unambiguous situation is ridiculous. And it's especially when you compare it to the, the actually morally unambiguous situations like the u.s war in iraq the u.s war in yemen or the cuban embargo and the last yes. thing I'll, I'll yeah i'll just make one more point oh sorry yeah. Aaron, go ahead you want to respond? Well, well just quickly that just i'm glad you mentioned syria because this, just this week the uh u.n special rapporteur on the impact of sanctions elena dohan who i've interviewed before on uh, pushback she wrapped up a visit to syria uh and she put out a statement just saying that the u.s sanctions are inhumane and are just totally imposing major suffering on, on the Syrian population. Of course, she was totally ignored with that statement. But if we had a re if we cared about morality, that would be front page news, you know, but we don't. So it's just ignored. Right. And it's like if the U.S. was concerned about human suffering, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but the easiest thing to do is to stop inflicting it. Yeah. And the other thing he said was the the whole neo-Nazi far right, whatever you want to call it, it, you can look at the numbers and indeed they might be very small, but that doesn't mean that they're not influential. I mean, take billionaires in the United States. There aren't a lot of billionaires in the United States. It's probably a few hundred. That doesn't mean they don't have tremendous influence on U.S. politics, especially if they were backed by a foreign power. Yes. As the Adolf Battalion is. Yes, like, exactly. And if they're so marginal, right, that, the New York Times is doing profiles of some of these soldiers when they come back from war. And as you said, Congress was so concerned, they at least wa wanted to pass a bill banning the, the shipment of weapons to them. Yes. Look, this caller was the first person I've ever say uh, claim that no one's heard of some of these far right groups. I mean, I've heard of them and I've heard a lot of concern about them for a long time. 
And uh, I think it's wrong to minimize their, their impact, but you know, that's, but um, you know, Hey, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Uh, Matt, thank you for the call. Thank you. Me too. Alexandra. Uh, Hello. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Hi, Aaron. Uh, My name is Alexandra and I was born and raised in Russia. Uh, I immigrated to the United States um, about more than 15 years ago uh, and I've been living here. Uh, My family owned um, and still own own, um, like a second home in Crimea. And I just want to add like a few cents um, uh, saying about um, like public opinion, um, basically people on the streets that um, uh, we, uh, whenever we go to our second home there, uh, how they feel about this um, situation. Uh, So basically like the majority of people in the city of Feodosia, which is closer to the um, like a Crimean bridge, um, more like on the um, east side of uh, Crimea, um, much so in favor of joining Russia um, at, at that time and uh, still now as well. Uh, the infrastructure improved um, significantly uh, within this um, eight years or so um, under which um, Russia helped a lot. Uh, they built that new bridge uh, mm-hmm. My mom actually was on that bridge, um, uh, like uh, the uh, like on Thursday, the day before um, uh, it was the terrorist act. Um, like um, just recently, the the one that happened just recently, uh, she was mm-hmm. coming back from from Crimea to to Russian side, um, and of course it made me worry a lot. But um, a lot of people are so much in, in um, favor of Russia and they do want to be a part of Russia, at least in that particular city. That's what I can say. Um, you, you go on a taxi, you talk to a taxi driver, you go to the restaurant, you go to, to the beach, to any, any place uh, over there. Um, they cannot even imagine just exactly because of that um, far right um, extremist groups um, that um, uh, you know, got built in, in Ukraine, um, that's because of them. Uh, they they couldn't imagine that themselves to be part of Ukraine anymore. Um, and uh, also, I would like to <laughs> thank you for um, doing your, um, your excellent um, journalism um, and putting light on, on these this things. Uh, my mom, uh, she um, owned a business uh, in, in Russia, as well as my uncle, and uh, people from Donbas, uh, a lot of refugee during all these eight years were coming to, to you know, in search of jobs because it uh, was a difficult situation with the war um, in, in Donbas. And my mom was like uh, giving jobs to these people. And uh, every time they would go back, my mom would ask, why are you going back, guys? Like, you know, it's a war there, like it's, it's dangerous. And they would say, well, what can we do? It's our home as well. Um, so they would live there, like maybe like, you know, elderly parents um, with kids and would go to Russia to make a, try to make a living, right? So, but they would still would go back to their areas, to their homes. Um, and, and because that's their homes. 
that's their that's their part of land and they wanted their opinions to be heard and at least um not to be necessarily part of russia but they wanted to have their opinion respected and they of course want peace nobody wants war as well yes. as a lot of my russian friends i myself um like sort of halfway ukrainian i mean i never thought about it this way because it used to be as always like okay we are the same people i mean yeah. i have so many friends and so many family members who have like relatives there Alexandra, it sounds like we lost you. Oh, um, I'm sorry. You can hear me. Oh, okay. okay. Here. Oh, you're back now. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, you're back now. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. So um, uh, in terms of also, I, I just want to add about Syria, for example. My grandma uh, used to have a business with uh, Syria, like a trade business uh, back in 1990s, like end of it. And uh, she was always amazed, like how... Um, uh, well, country was run and people were happy and uh, they were relatively well off. Uh, obviously, she was going there for goods and <laughs> bringing goods to Russia. Uh, so, and she she's been doing it for like uh, she she had been doing it for for a few years uh, back in um, you know nineties. Yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, it's amazing what what happened to this country because obviously it was one of the well-developing um, countries and uh, um, really with a good life, people living there. And it's just horrible what um, the policy of um, the United States or the NATO, um, yep. you know, bring, bring the world uh, to, to this. Yes. Th- yes. Thank you. Sorry. I've, I've no, taken, no, I've was, I really well. appreciate the call and, and, and uh, thank you for sharing all this with us. I really appreciate it. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh-huh. Take care. Okay, final caller, Alex. Uh, hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, so I just want to like quickly just go over a few things. Um, I really like your interview with Lev Galinkin, but I think there's like one gaping issue with it. Um, I think some people watching it might be under some kind of illusion that maybe two or three percent of Ukrainians are these neo-Nazis because they voted for Svoboda, and that like ninety-seven percent of Ukrainians are like these angels. And I think that's a like that's that's just not right. Um, there are other like fascist parties in Ukraine. It's just that they're like maybe not as openly fascist. Like they're a little bit quieter with their fascism. So like the former president of Ukraine, Poroshenko, like several of his members of his party are like pretty hardcore neo Nazis. Like Perubi's there. Yeah. You have Vladimir Vitrovich who's there. Um, you have other fascist parties, like like sort of so very very soft fascist parties, like the Holist Party, like Voice, who is like super against, you know, Minsk too, and believes that you know the Russian language should be eliminated. And even inside Zelensky, there are like some pretty hardcore Nazis. Like the first prime minister from Zelensky's party is a guy named Alexei Gensharuk. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No. So within a month of becoming a one thing, on like mid October of 2019. Like he goes to like a neo-Nazi concert. So it's literally you go on the internet and look up Alexei Gansharuk Nazi concert should be like the first. Link. Oh yes, that's right. I know. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, there's yes, another yes. guy. There's also like a yeah. small fascist caucus inside Zelensky's party led by a guy named Nikita Potoraev. Okay. Um, he's not, not super well-known guy, but it's like he, he tried to pass all these kinds of Russophobic laws. Um, okay. So, so, okay. That's the first. Uh, so, 
like to say there's like only like two or three percent of Ukrainians are fascists. Like, no, there's like plenty of supporters and enablers. And if you look at the last election, they got like, depending on how you count, they got between like 20 and like 25 percent of the vote. So say like, so okay, well, listen, I, I've never heard a figure that high. Uh, so that's interesting if it's true. He, he was he got he was I, out within like a few months after that, but still. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, my I don't know what the actual percentage is, and uh, I, what I know is that they just. As I've said many times tonight, that they that they just play an, an an outsized role. And oh, absolutely! I mean, they they get what they want. Yeah. And also, like, remember in the diaspora community, Zelensky lost the vote. So like right. the the rest of the vote went to the far right camp. Okay. The second point I want to make is like there's like some things I just really want to get out of the way. Um, I want to give a little bit of credit to Poroshenko because back in 2014, he actually did try to sort of not escalate the situation too badly. So, for example, hmm. he tried to keep truck traffic open between Crimea and Ukraine, and or like between the Donbass and Ukraine, and the militias just unilaterally, unilaterally blocked it, even though the Ukrainian government kind of like, they, they wanted to have their war, but they kind of always also wanted to have their peace. Yeah, yeah. But the militias yeah. got what they want. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the last a couple, like super quick points I want to make. Um, about a, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this story, but about a week before Zelensky was elected president, uh, I think this was on May 23rd, 2019, uh, a bunch of um, Ukrainian NGOs and civil society organizations signed an open letter to Zelensky, basically telling him to not do anything to uh, de-escalate tensions with Russia or with the separatists. So just literally mm. go, go on Google and look up May 23rd, 2019, Ukraine Civil Society Open Letter to Zelensky. And at the bottom of this letter, there's like a list of civil society organizations and NGOs, which are like mostly funded by Western governments who are like signing yeah. off on this, like stopfake.org and stuff like that. Yep. And so very, very, very last point, I promise. Uh, Right before, like when Zelensky was still running for president, Zelensky's wife was actually put on the peacekeeper kill list. I don't know if you've heard of that. Turns out she had like property in Crimea, and she was put on the Mirotvarets list. I don't know if you ever heard of that. So his wife I was also threatened. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And but but that's all really good to know. So thank all you. Right, for so that. that was a mouthful, but yeah. But just, no, I just wanted to yeah. let, let you know this stuff. Maybe you could. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And if there's any links you want to, you want to send me that. You can literally Google this. This I, I don't really remember any of the links. I, I just remember hearing about this at the time. The civil society uh-huh. letter that I told you about that's like financed by like Western governments. Like you can like literally Google it. Like May 23rd, 2019, civil society open letter to Zelensky. And it's like okay. the first couple of links. It's translated into English. Um, you could get like maybe let's do some research into that. I will. I just, wanted, look I just wanted to get the stuff off my chest. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks okay. for calling. Okay. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Love what you do, man. Bye bye. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for spending some time with me and to everybody who called in and shared their comments. I really, really.